Hi, this is Asia Tech Podcast. My name is Graham Brown, joined in the studio by Darwin Kuniawan. Welcome. Hey, thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. So before we talk about Ray Dow and your journey as an entrepreneur, we also want to know a little bit about your background. So you're from Jakarta, Indonesia originally. Yes. You came to Singapore a few years ago. For university, a long right. time ago. Actually. Oh, for university. Uh, what yeah. did you study here? Um, computer science. Right. Um, so you know, I was trained as a technology person, yeah, programmer of sorts, yeah, yeah. Before, of course, I moved on to this. Okay, good. So, do you consider yourself a tech technical uh, guy? Yeah. All right, because we're going to talk about blockchain. We're going to talk about DAO, which decentralized organizations, right? So, of okay, so you're going to help us understand a little yeah, bit of that. Right, okay, sure. I'm a technical guy, but when we come to blockchain, I'm sort of bridging worlds between blockchain and you know the outer world of normality. So you can help sort of unpack a little bit and translate that for us. Okay, definitely. And we're going to talk about real estate as well. Sure. Okay, um, your background before you got into Ray Dow, were you a an entrepreneur beforehand? Were you involved in real estate? Were you involved in blockchain? Tell us a little bit how you got into this, and then maybe we can talk about what it is that you do. Right. So of course, you know, I was trained as a programmer, a technical person. So the first few jobs that I had was basically in that space. You know, mm. we developed software. Um, before, um, you know, I moved on to try out different areas of the business. Actually, my last corporate job was with um, in a media company, mm. and I was dealing their digital signage system. So it is related to um, technical aspect of the whole operations, but it is it is you know enroaching out to mm. the marketing aspect of it. Mm. And this is where I realized that hey, I'm probably suited more um, better in looking things in the big picture kind of way. Mm. And that's when you know I kind of started doing startups. So Radar is not my first startups. I, I did a few startups before. Um, How many? What, what number is this? Well, three. Right. I think. So this is the third. Uh, yeah, but right. not just in Singapore though, right? I, yeah. I also traveled back to Indonesia. Um, so we started uh, many kinds of startups, um, f not just from the technological right. angle, but also from you know, you know, low tech. Tofu. Yeah, exactly. That's right. one. That so I tell us a little bit about that because I think it's really interesting. Even though this is not, you know, about blockchain, I think when people want to understand more about the company and the person in particular, the fact that they've been involved in many different industries and they've been involved in like a, a food and beverage type right. industry as well, it gives them a more of an understanding of what kind of an entrepreneur they are. So tell us a little bit about your history with tofu. <laughs> right. So, uh, because I've been staying in Singapore for 18 years now, right? So I kind of saw this rise of this particular dessert food, right. which is that soft tofu, and realized that, hey, we don't have this in Indonesia yet. And that's when we thought that, hey, you know, let's just bring it over, right. try it out. Yeah. And it is basically a validation, right? We started small one stall, and we see, you know, we saw this grows, and we expand it. So it's it's a clear cut, you know, try out. If it doesn't work, then we scrap that. If it works, we do it. Right, were you importing the products or were you making the product yourself? Yeah, so we imported the raw material to mm. Indonesia. Okay. And in Indonesia, we have a facility to basically, um, you know, cook the product and then package it, deliver. So you're making it in Indonesia? In then Indonesia. In, then exporting it to? No, no. It, oh, this was in Indonesia it, at yeah, the time? Yeah, this is an Indonesia setup. Right. So, and where for, were you importing the soybean from? 
from Singapore. Oh, so you're importing from Singapore? Yeah. So they make soybeans in Singapore? They farm the wheat? No, they, so, they so this is a, they, they also imported it. Right. But it's a, a, a semi-processed product. Right. Right. But it's not really the the tofu that we see yeah. that I've been importing. So. Right. So you imported that to Indonesia Correct. and you set up a concession stall somewhere yes. selling just right. this yes. soybean dessert. Yeah. Okay. And how was that for you? What kind of an experience was it for you? Were you on the store yourself? Yeah, well, of course, well, for the first one or two stalls, we have to do it. Mm. And I guess this is when I was exposed to the challenges of actually running these kind of stalls right. in Indonesia. For example, one of the biggest challenges that we had was manpower. Mm. Right. So, so I, I guess everybody will say the same thing those that have been in the same space. So we kind of learn it the hard way. Right. When you mean manpower, you mean shortage of manpower or getting the right people? Uh, both. Right. right. But there's, there's 270 million people in Indonesia. So you kind of have to get the quality people there. Right. Not to mention, you know, the aspects of, um, you know, how people cheat, for example. I'm not going to get yeah, deeper specific, into that yeah. specific, but... That's part of the challenge that we'll encounter. So we kind of have to create a system, um, tweak it as we go. Um, you know, that's part of the journey, I suppose. Right. Yeah, that's a good experience as well. Right. That's a very low-tech yeah. world. Yeah. Right. And how many stores did you have at the end of your business? Uh, well, at, at our peak, we had about nine stores. Nine stores. Um, in Jakarta and greater Jakarta area. Yeah. Um, Would you do that in Singapore? No. Well... No. This whole food time started in Singapore. So I realized that, hey, you know, I probably have better chance in Indonesia where nobody's right. there. Right. So you're taking a model that worked in a different market into a newer market. Right. And exporting it there. Right. You know. All right. So let's fast forward to today. Right. Talk about Ray Dow. Right. So let's maybe talk about the name first so it's spelled r-e-i-d-a-o i'm just going to pop up your pitch deck now so people can actually see that sure or it's more of a brochure actually that you have but this is this is crowd villa that you talk about but the the company if you can see the logo at the bottom if you're listening to this on the podcast that's just spell out r-e-i-d-a-o and that's two parts isn't it r-e-i so if you're from the real estate world you may be familiar with that and dow d-a-o from the blockchain world talk about each component right so of course when we first started the ideal that we want to achieve with Radar is to create a product where the community, the blockchain community, which is a DAO, can participate in the you know a scheme right. where the organization invests in a property. So we borrow the terms that we know today, which is um, REIT, right? R E I T, Real yeah. Estate Investment Trust. So we kind of change the T the trust to a DAO because the property is now. Um, not under the trust anymore. Our vision is um, the property should be under the DAO. Hence right. the what, what does the, explain to me DAO? Uh, well, it's a DAO is decentralized autonomous organizations. Mm -hmm. In essence, uh, you know, we're trying to say that this organization is not uh, located in any particular place because right. it's decentralized. All over the world, people can participate in this um, you know, community by way of foldings through our digital assets, for example. So so that's formed the basis of a DAO. Yeah. So if we were to look, for example, at what has existed in the real estate market 
until now, REITs, as you, for example, real estate investment trusts, are quite a new development, especially in the terms of like the consumer side, where you've got like the fund my street style model, where you can have a group of unrelated amateur investors in many cases, and some professionals will get together and they will invest in properties and right. they they won't be involved in the fundraising themselves. They won't be involved in the acquisition, but in, in a very sort of Kickstarter-style model. Right. There are many of those kind of like models out there, and to a varying degree of success right. they've had. Obviously, the issue is, is that you're attracting people who maybe are amateur investors and don't understand the risks involved, but that that's not specific to real estate generally. That's specific to the model, as it would be in any kind of equity crowdfunding, for example. In why do we need to then take that from the fund my street model to, for example, the Dow model? Right. I guess uh, the biggest concern that people have with the current setups um, in, in the space, not just particularly this real estate model. I guess in in most you know company models mm. is the decentralizations uh, that happen. Right. If you mentioned earlier about how these people invest together, you still have that single point of value, which is your manager of that particular fund. Um, so this is something that we thought we want to alleviate with setting, up, setting it up as a DAO, right? So trying it out and having been successful in it, it's actually two different things. Mm. But I, I can share with you the ideals, and that's what we had before, to create a system where nobody has any control, centralized control over the fund. So you know, practically all the token holders, the participants, they have equal say, equal, um, you know, votes to ha what happens to the structures. Right, so that's there's no fund manager per se. Technically, say, exactly. Or no trust manager. Exactly, that, that's the ideal. Right, well, why is that ideal? Because somebody may argue that you need a professional in there who knows what they're doing. Right, but then these crowds, well, there's this some wisdom of the crowds. So it has also been argued that as a crowd, we perform better compared to one single expert. So of course there's that argument. Right. We, we don't know, right? I mean, I've been telling people that this is an um, experiment. We don't know whether it will work. Right. What we can do is really just try it out and see how it goes. Okay. So the ideal being that a crowd can make a better decision than a professional and this is being tested in many cases. And they're very interesting examples, isn't it? You mentioned Wisdom of the Crowns, going back to the book by James Suruki. Right. So the point is, for those that don't understand it, we'll dive deeper into your business model in a minute. The idea is, and I think it was put to test originally in counting jelly beans, wasn't it? And right. At a country fair. So they would put jelly beans in a jar and they would ask people to guess how many jelly beans there were. And there's no way you could know how many jelly beans there were in that jar. Right. Unless you took them all out and counted each one individually, but they couldn't do that. And what they found was very interesting. There was a couple of things. Firstly, a larger group of people had more chance than an individual of guessing it right, statistically. Right. And the more diverse the group was, the better they were at guessing. Right. So, for example, if you had just had a group of guys, they were less effective than a group who were mixed, as an example, and different backgrounds and so on. So that's the idea of rhythm of the crowds. And you say that in the real estate space, that could be something that's gonna come up with a better decision on investments than say a professional fund manager? Probably. Probably. We never know. We don't know yet, that's for certain. Um, but probably it's, you know, it's a good thing that if we can just try it out first. 
of course, in a smaller kind of way, and that's the plan that we had before. Okay, good. But of course, you know, regulation-wise, then we're faced with a different challenges, mm. and this is why we're actually moving to. If you see the white paper earlier, mm. it's about Crowd Villa. Right. So, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about Crowd Villa. If we can get that sure. up on the pitch deck on the the white paper. So Crowd Villa. Radar, what's the relationship, just so we understand? So Radar is a tech company that was established to build this technology. Mm -hmm. But when we were trying to set up the structures, the legal structures to deliver Radar, of course, we're faced with all you know kind of regulations. Um, of course, recently, one of the most prominent one is whether um, a certain thing is considered securities, mm. right? So of course, the model that I have been sharing with you, Radar, it will be seen as security. So right. we need all the kind of licensing um, regime in all kind of jurisdictions that we want to enter. And we're not well capitalized for that. So we kind of need to keep working on the idea, but then we change the structures in a way that it's not about investment anymore. And that is why we come up with Crowd Villa. Right. right. So the idea is with Crowd Villa, people contribute to this effort of building portfolio not for investment gain, but rather for utilization gain. Mm. Um, so when we change that, immediately we f we you know fall under the regulations um, regime right now, and we're okay. Right. So let me understand: if you were seen as a security, you need to be regulated, like by the MAS or whatever jurisdiction you're in, right? Right. However. The alternative, as you're proposing, is let me understand that a bit better. So, right. what is that that we're contributing to? A, right. What? So, Crowd Villa, it's a different entity. Yeah. And it is actually being set up as a non-profit entity based in Singapore. So, by by definition, because it's a non-profit, there's no shareholders. Mm -hmm. So, whatever assets or crowdfunding that we do that will be contributed to this entity, there is no way these funds will flow out or benefits a particular group. Right. Uh, particular group of people. So the idea is that we're telling people, if you are contributing to this crowd villa entity, we're going to use the fund to acquire assets so that we can make it available for all of you that contributed. Mm -hmm. So when people contributed to this entity, they know that there's no way it is going to be treated as an investment because there is no way this fund will flow out to them. Mm -hmm. But we can, in return, give them utilization rights on the assets that we require. Right. So another way to look at it is actually a community-based asset ownership. Mm -hmm. right? So we as a community, for example, can acquire a hotel building. And because this building is owned by us as a community, we can actually um, you know, make its utilization costs lower mm. um, you know, comparing with the competitors, probably the hotel next door. Right. So let me, un let me understand that the the trust so to speak the group the right. DAO owns as a community the asset yes but the individuals can somehow get usage rights or investment not necessarily rights but through the the, the community itself but how would that happen how would i as an individual right. for example if i was part of that DAO and we purchased a hotel yeah and i can't use that as an investment within that structure within that body right how can i then as an individual investor benefit from that so of course it is part of the whole token economy mm. that we're building. The idea is that if you contribute, let's say, Ether 
um, to this structure script villa. In return, we'll give you a certain number of digital assets mm -hmm. that we have. We call the crowd villa tokens. Now, these crowd villa tokens then represent um, your access rights to the properties. Like, for example, in the future, we can say that to so say in this particular properties, you need a certain number of tokens. So, if you have that tokens, you can actually right. use it to stake property. Like a timeshare? Like a timeshare, exactly. Right. So, I'm glad to mention that because legally, on paper, we're mm. a timeshare company. And because of that, we're not security. Right. Rights. So, a timeshare doesn't count as security, security or an investment. So, and you can buy time yes. and all part own a holiday home, for right. example, and have usage rights to that. And you're legally allowed to resell those rights? Or are you legally allowed to lease them to somebody else? How does that work? Yeah, so as with the current regulations on timeshare, yeah. um, at least in Singapore, many parts of the world, timeshare is not securities. Right. Only two jurisdictions that we know of consider timeshare as securities. Uh -huh. And those are Malaysia and Australia. So when we do our token sale, we are excluding them out. Right. So we cannot sell them. Yeah. But as again, with all these regulations on timeshare, you are legally allowed to transfer your timeshare contract. Okay. So we are just making the model. And immediately we're, you know, we're under all this regulation um, regime right now. Very interesting. I got it. Maybe we can just have a look back at your white paper here. And we can flick down to, I know there's a lot of data in here, so those who actually want to go and delve deeper, you know, there's a lot of research that's gone into it. I'm going to have a look. The, I want to focus on the, the, the visual element here, like the holiday homes. Just as an example here, so this looks to me like it would in the 80s or 90s, a timeshare brochure, for example, in sim the similar kind of feel to it. So there's nothing new there in that sense. Right. But let's say, I mean, this property here looks like it could be somewhere in Bali or Indonesia. In Bali. Okay, right, just by the design and the structure, you right. can kind of get that feel, can't you? So that there are some amazing properties there, right? And there's a very well-established property market. So is this a real example or e even if it's not, can you talk us through how this would work from the moment where you would have the DAO go and acquire this asset and fundraise for that process? And right. It's actually a pretty straightforward process. When we do our token sale, we're essentially trying to build a portfolio of assets. So we will legally, the, the nonprofit organizations, we legally uh, try and acquire all these assets. Mm -hmm. When we do, uh, we'll open it up for the community to book. Now from the user point of view, it's like they're booking uh, hotel rooms from mm -hmm. a booking platform. Right. Um, of course, our main um, offering here is that as a community member, you'll be able to utilize these assets uh, at the lower um, price point. Again, because as a nonprofit, there is no yield or premium that needs to be attached to the utilization rights. Mm. And if we do this well, we're basically changing how society works. Because as a community now, we can come together and you know, acquire particular assets that all of us will use and basically pay base costs on that unit. Right. One example, right? Uh, this kind of villa in Bali. If we look at um, the market right now, say four bedrooms, beachfront villa, it will probably run you about, I know, you know, depending on the seasons, $500 a night to $1,000 mm. a night. But if you look at what constitutes that price, it's actually your real operational costs, electricity, salaries, and all that. Plus, there's a big part of it. It's actually a premium mm. that is supposed to be paid to the landlord, the owner. So if we change this model, if we already acquire this property and we run this unit as a nonprofit entity, and just to make it available to our community, immediately this price point will be lower. Mm. That's the, the angle that we want to test. Right, okay. The part about acquiring assets generally in society, I'm fascinated about that. And 
happy to talk about that and we'll dive into that in a minute as well going back to buying the villa for example you talk about the premium i imagine that a big part of that premium is the fact that redundancy or void periods for any you know seasonal property owner is going to be a massive issue is the fact that okay they can charge 500 to a thousand a night um, but they may only be booking seven or eight nights in a month, right? So that's right. the that's why they have to charge is because unlike the residential let, which maybe be charging at hundred to two hundred a night, right. you know they're only covering eight or nine nights. But if you were to then tokenize that somehow and offer it to a wider group of people, that could help address that issue of the fact that the biggest challenge facing any landlord is void. It's not necessarily the cost mark. The margins are there easily. But it's the fact that maybe you're addressing that. Do you find, have you any thoughts on how that could have addressed void periods for landlords? Right. So uh, the, the way you look at it, even for the current landlords, hmm. um, that void periods, even after the premium that they're putting in that eight to ten days probably in a hmm. month that is being rented out, uh, it still constitutes a certain number of yields that is expected of the properties yeah. of them. And this can run, at least in Bali, probably about 3 5%, 6%. Um, so at least we take that out, that 3 to 6% probably. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, when we do this as a community, that void period challenge, we hope, can be alleviated further because right. it's a loyalty play now. All these are stakeholders now. Mm. All of us are stakeholders. If we have a choice to actually go to Bali, probably all of us will want to stay in our own property. Um, so that's an angle that also we're testing out. Right, right. And what you're mentioning as well, we'll talk about this on the wider context of asset acquisition or ownership, the use of assets in society in general, and what you think that could apply to. If we look at a lot of the successful models of recent years, Airbnb, Grab, Uber, etc., really they're not bringing in any new assets they're just unlocking redundant assets i mean airbnb is a classic example isn't it is that you know a lot of people have a spare room and they can make money out of that they're not people who are actually building rooms for airbnb i mean that's a different sector now entirely but like what you're saying is that the challenge is is that there are assets out there but the manner of acquiring them is difficult for the people who want to use them, right? I want to use a room. I want to stay for one night. I don't want to buy a house to do that, right? right? But this guy has a house and a spare room. I could use it. The same with a taxi. Right. You know, the fact, the, the reason why Uber or Grab can charge less is because they're not, they don't have more drivers. They simply have drivers doing more trips, right? And the, the driver is getting paid more because he's busier. So where do you think this, taking that Dow model could apply in a wider community in terms of you talk about assets and changing society right i i think that's very interesting that you mention all these businesses right because that's the ideals um, that everybody started with but if we looked at all these businesses the one that you mentioned it's really not about sharing economy anymore at least in my in my opinion right it's really about micro rental mm. economy now like you mentioned about someone having a spare room and renting this room out. But if you look at the statistics of the type of properties that is listed on Airbnb, for example, chances are right now it's a whole unit rental. So people are starting to use this platform as a way to gain more rental yield out of their properties right. rather than sharing their extra room out. Likewise with Uber or Grab, 
it's probably more people not, you know, effectively trying to get more return out of their, you know, rental fees of the properties. In fact, probably there's a specific business model based on that. So it's not about sharing economy anymore. I guess that's a problem that we want to address, right? We're trying to say that, hey, micro rental economy, in the end, you still pay the premium mm. because all these backers, they have you know, capitals behind them that is actually expecting a kind of returns. Right. And They're middlemen, effectively. Middlemen. Right. And of course, the shareholders, for example. Right. Of course, it, it's a fair model. It's in this whole capitalistic model. It's fine, right? Nothing's wrong with that. But what if we as a community now, instead of um, having someone um, you know, trying to do a micro rental on us, we come together and we actually operate this as a true sharing model. So this is uh, the terms that we use, true sharing economy, because this is essentially what we're trying to have. Now, what, as an example, the two of us, let's say you and I, we're good friends today. And then let's suppose we travel to Bali often and we agree that, hey, let's pull funds. We buy this villa. I get to use it for six months. You get to use it for six months in a year. Mm-hmm. Now, the model, the economic model changes. If we travel there and use our own allocations, we don't pay any more rent. Technically, there is no premium to be paid anymore. We just pay that utilization cost, electricity bill, which is, you know, have to be there. So the economic model changes when we change the structures. Mm. Now with blockchain, with Crowdvilla, we're trying to scale this model up to thousands of people, thousands of properties, because without this blockchain system, ecosystem, um, we can only do it with between friends. Because I trust you, you trust me. Right. Uh, you know, when I tell you that I use the property uh, for six months, you know that I'm only using it for six months. I'm not going to run away with the TV, for example. But, you know, it only works between friends today. So we want to scale it up and mm. try it out, see mm. how, what happens. What can happen? You taking that model to real estate as an example, which is easily compartmentalized and quantified. And, you know, there, there are models there. Where else could it affect? You talk about this affecting society in general. Where yep. do you see? I mean, be blue ocean on this one. So right. where, where can you see this impact society in five to ten years so we started with crowd villa which is focused on holiday homes simply because everybody pretty much is familiar with holidays right they travel one way or another sometimes but this model can be replicated to all kind of assets out there one of the verticals that mm. we've been looking at and recently is very very popular about this sharing economy of spaces which which is event of, spaces offices offices which is very hot right now yeah or co-working spaces it's the same you know logic behind it when we look at co-working spaces today it's not so much about sharing economy anymore but it is really about micro rental economy right, right exactly and look at the people who are getting involved like the we works and the regis they're, they're just big real estate players commercial landlords exactly and at the end of the day they still require that yield to be, you know, given to their shareholder mm. in the long run. And who is paying that premium? Us as a users. Of course, you know, by them lowering the price point down, it gives access to many of us now to be able to use the office space. But what if there is a different model? We change the structures now. What if we as a community, 
we can come together and actually own that office building and all of us can use it together as a community yeah. at a lower price point, no premium to be paid. You know, again, that's an uh, experiment that we probably will do. Exactly. How could it work? For example, we have a studio here. This right. is possibly the only audiovisual studio in Singapore because, you know, I've looked for them and I'm, therefore I couldn't find one. So I had to go out and make and buy the asset myself and, and furnish it. But I know a lot of people want to use it. How can I apply that model to what you're saying? Is it possible now that the asset's already acquired, so to speak, you know, I, somebody doesn't have to come in and build their own studio. Now. Right. There is this here. How would I apply that model for something like this? Uh, well, it de depends on your positions on it. Of course, the the idea, the model can be replicable to be, um, you know, for all this kind of utilization scenario. Like this studio, for example. Um, for example, if you want to exit your positions in this studio, the ownership, then you can then uh, set up a structures where a community, a group of people that want to use the studio um, co-own this indirectly mm. so that they can use it together without the premium part. Of course, the traditional model is that you as a landlord, you rent it out and you make profit right. out of it. But so it really depends on your positions. But if it were to be a new community, um, people that want to use this kind of studio together, then the same model can be applied. Mm. So I could put the ownership into a structure. A vehicle, yeah. Yeah, like you suggested, a DAO. Right, right, something like that. Okay, effectively, I would divest my asset and ownership of it, and then they would own it as a community, right? and they would get usage rights to it in the same way they would have on a timeshare. Right. Very interesting. Maybe we should talk about <laughs> that. Now you've planted a seed in my head, right. an idea that's growing. All right, Darwin, um, just before you go, a couple of things I want to ask you. Obviously, um, very interesting model. Um, the white paper's here. I'm interested in um, you know, where you go from here. You're currently raising at the moment? Yeah, so we're doing the token sale right mm -hmm. now um, for Carrot Villa. Um, it's happening on this platform called GBX, Gibraltar Blockchain Exchange. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to be there until end of September. Okay, so we'll put all the details in the show notes for sure. people who want to find out more. And as a team, are you growing? Are you recruiting? Well, yeah. Um, I mean, this space, we are always recruiting. Um, we have a shortage of talent, if that's not obvious yet. Yeah. Because all of this hype about token sale IC is blockchain. Um, so yeah, I mean, we are trying to get in touch with people that is that are willing to learn. Um, myself and my co-founders, we didn't start it with the full knowledge of the blockchain. We self-learn ourselves. So we kind of are expecting the same attitude. Like mm. we don't expect these people to already know what they're doing. At least they're willing to learn. Passionate and about learning. Exactly. Sponges. That, exactly. That's good enough for us. Right. And what? So they understand what kind of culture as a company are you? How would you describe it? Well, uh, we're actually pretty, um, in a way, um, we have a, a high degree of, of flexibility. Yeah. You didn't decentralized? In a way, yeah. So, um, like, for example, we know that commuting actually cost times. So we don't need to commute as much as possible. If we can hold the meetings somewhere else, mm. we'll do that. And you know, okay. that's just one real. Well, the reason I ask is that I mean, there may be people who say, look, I can't get to Singapore. Yeah. But I'm, you know, I'm passionate about what you're doing. Right. Should we talk? So Definitely. 
you'd be interested to hear from them. Yeah, we've been doing that actually. Okay, excellent. So what, what's the easiest way for people to get hold of you? What's the most effective communication channel? Um, well, our email address are on our website. That's mm. usually the first point of contact that we have. We also have communities um, being set up on, um, it's already there by the way, a Telegram group. Okay. Um, Can we put all the details in the show notes? Sure. Okay, people want to get in touch. Sure. Darwin, fantastic having you on the show. Thanks a lot for sharing your journey with us today. Wish you all the best. And I, I think you're in a space which will yield um, some interesting insights into you know a wider application like you talked about, the impact on society as well. Your challenge, I know people talk about disrupting, but I think the word challenging, challenging the way people view those sort of ownership and usage of assets as well. And I think those people that have listened to the conversation will get where this is going, should be interested in what you're doing and pay close attention to your journey. So Darwin, thank you very much. That's Darwin Kuniawan, everybody, founder and CEO of Raydow. We'll put all the details in the show notes, show you how, if you want to reach out to Darwin. Thanks a lot for coming on the show today. And thanks, Graham, for having me. Excellent.